From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Challenges when people say we're going from equal to unequal. Actually, it's probably unequal in Dublin to be paid the same amount as somebody in rural settings because the cost of living is so much higher and, as we've seen recently, ratcheting even more. The fuel bill is 9,836 for 73 days in the warmest summer we've had since 1976. Can you yeah. imagine what your ESB bill is going to be when you have to turn on those heaters? You know what? I, I wanted to grow with this job quietly and now I find myself on the radar to show Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. What on earth is an emerging drug trends project manager? It's official, the Irish weather really is out to get us. And when it's time to say goodbye to the dogs on your route, make sure you remember their names. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show. That's... Nah, I've, I've forgotten it. What's it called? On this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, the first item on the newsings agenda came from an unnamed source. I was reading an article last week in some class of publication and it said that younger people, that is to say to an extent the next generation, aren't really into the boozing the way that uh, maybe a lot of other generations, essentially everyone else, uh, was. And the suggestion as far as I could understand, you know, if if an article doesn't have me within the first two paragraphs, I'm gone. So it's got to be good. And and I think this one had, and I, I think the suggestion seemed to be that the COVID and the pandemic left the younger generation to an extent a little reluctant to go out, a little shyer to go out, a little more introverted in some ways, as opposed to wanting to burst out like the chewing gum ad. So they haven't gone and gone bursting out as, as we might have expected. Maybe us, the older ones, did burst out and say, this is great. What, what, what have we missed? Where are we going? But one of the other things is that a lot of people drank too much during the uh, pandemic, just stayed in and said, well, if, if this is it, and they got stuck in. Um, but the younger people, not, not so much. Which is why I'm interested in this piece in the Irish Independent, which, which asks the question, is gourmet coffee replacing plastic cups of beer at music festivals? And, and, and that, that intrigues me. That you kind of, kind of, right, anyone, would anyone like anything from the coffee bar? I mean, that's unheard of uh, to me. To me. Um, for, for certainly for a music festival, but certainly that that appears to be they want a cup of coffee. That's very I think it's a very civilized approach from the younger people saying, "I'm going to get two. Can I get two lattes uh, with um, nut milk or whatever they call it these days?" And off they go. Incoming brief Ryan film review warning. I went to see Nope. I was dying to talk about. Or not dying to talk about. I was just dying to see Nope, uh, Jordan Peele's latest film. I was excited about it. The trailer looked great. The thriller? The trailer looked great. And I went to see it. Do you want to know my opinion on it? And I'll keep this short because the clue is in the name of the film. Did I like it? Nope. Um, uh, no, I thought it was awful. And uh, three of the heads upstairs, uh, I'll name them, Ailish, Jack and David, all said, what a terrific film that was. What an amazing, nuanced, clever adventure film the whole thing was and um, I said did we go to the same film now you didn't go to the same film called Dope or Hope or something nope nope went to the same film and um, just had the same it could be state of mind thing though I always say that sometimes it could be in state of mind just go no this is just too stupid no 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 I don't want to get involved don't want to get involved because Jordan Peele tried remaking Twilight Zone and made a bags of it absolutely desperate and this was awful and I was I was talking about the original Twilight Zone last week because I was excited because Paramount Plus 
are showing all of them remastered and everything. But then I looked up Paramount Plus, and they're only showing them in America. So I can't get them here. She broke my heart. Then I got this lovely email from Deirdre in Salt Hill in Galway. She says, I listen to your radio show every day. It's a great way to start an email, obviously. And she says, I got brackets super excited. She knows I know what you're doing, and you know what I'm doing. And we know my feelings about that prefix. Got super excited last week when you were talking to Audrey Dalton. Do you remember Emma Dalton's daughter, lovely woman? And you were talking about Paramount TV and the Twilight Zone. And I was actually getting dressed at the time. The detail is, 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 is yeah. I was getting dressed at the time. And I swear, I almost toppled over whilst pulling on my skinny jeans. Happens to all of us. Well, not me. I mean, I don't wear skinny jeans. But I know what you're saying. And I was subsequently disappointed when you broke the news that this the Twilight Zone wasn't available in Ireland. Anyway, I was flicking through the TV channels last night and stumbled across Pick TV, which must be up towards the Arctic, the kind of the Shackleton end of the channels. 789, or one of those. Pick TV. It's showing the Twilight Zone on Monday nights, 10 and 11, double episode, season one. Oh, this is great news. Deirdre, I owe you an ice cream on the prom. I haven't seen this show since I was a teenager when I loved Stephen King and the Twilight Zone and all things weird and wonderful. So I just thought I'd inform you of my exciting discovery so you could do the same. Love that. That is such a win for me. To actually, what am I doing? Throwing that piece of paper aside. I need to fold it up, put it in my pocket and take it home to remind me. Let's hope that the Twilight Zone stands up to repeat viewing and we won't be hearing Ryan dismiss it with zope. Zope. It's like nope and zone and you know okay suit yourselves the next item of alleged interest is the american collector's obsession with baseball cards you know it's kind of one of those american cultural pop cultural things that passed us by we used to i think people used to collect cards in from cigarette or chewing gum packets when i was a kid one of the things we used to get was a superman or star wars cards with chewing gum that was kind of powdery um and you'd get the chewing gum, which was always cheap and nasty. It lasted about 30 seconds for taste. But the cards were pretty good. And I do recall those. But baseball but baseball cards are a big thing in the States. And just uh, on pass on, a Mickey Mantle baseball card. This is for the few Americans listening to it. They'll go, oh, really? Mickey Mantle baseball card? Uh, from 1952, was sold at the weekend, just gone by. And the sale makes the card the most valuable sports collectible in the world. And the price somebody out there with lots of money on their hands paid for this baseball card from 1952, they, they paid $12.6 million for the baseball card. Good God in heaven above. Yeah, but will they keep it on the mantelpiece? Do you get it? The, the mantel... I'm so sorry. Look, over there, it's the Queen of Crime. Uh, Val McDermott uh, is in the news today because uh, she has revealed she received a letter demanding that she drop the moniker Queen of Crime, which is used on her website, because a copyright of the nickname is owned by Agatha Christie Limited. Hmm, okay. Now, Val McDermott, I don't think I've read Val McDermott's books. I'm not sure. She sold more than 17 million books it was referred to as the Queen, Queen of Crime on her website. Uh, also claimed to have sent, been sent correspondence from Agatha Christie's great-grandson, James Pritchard, who was chief executive of Agatha Christie Limited, who expressed his shock at seeing the nickname. 
So Val was at the Edinburgh Book Festival and she said, she started reading all this stuff out saying the, the Christie estate wrote, you must cease and desist referring to Val McDermott as the Queen of Crime. We have trademarked this expression. If you call Val McDermott as the, the Queen of Crime, you will be in breach of copyright and this trademark. So that's where she's in a little bit of a who done it, what done it and why done it mystery at the moment. There was a moment during what's usually a fairly light-hearted rambling through the news of the day when Ryan read out a text live, apparently without having read through it first, and, well, it was something of a showstopper. Owen says, I went to see my consultant yesterday to get results. Just wanted to let you know, since you're one of my friends on the radio, the results weren't good. Oh, this is a desperate... And I'm devastated, and I don't think I can face starting treatment again. Okay, well, look at Owen. What can I say to you? You're a friend of ours, and I, I, I was reading that I, I didn't. You caught me on the hop there, um, but I, I want you to know that we'll be here for you every morning. Um, I'll talk to you after the show. I'll give you a call after the show and see how you're doing. That's not nice, and I wish you well. And you know what? I watched a movie the other. Let me just talk, talk to you about this for a second. I watched a film the other at the weekend, um, and it was starring. Um, it's called The Bright Side, and it stars uh, uh, Gemma Leah. Devereaux and who else is in Anna Gildee I think it's based on her book about her life experience with cancer and it's it, she, I'd met Gemma Lee at the RT launch and I said I watched this film to see because it's an Irish film from a couple of years ago it's available to watch on Amazon Prime and she's truly excellent in it she's in Smother among other things the reason I'm going to mention is because Owen's e- uh, email there um I don't know much about the world of cancer necessarily. I've been fortunate to date, and I am touching wood with that, that ridiculous superstition because who wants it in their life? But this film is about um, a young woman who's a stand-up comedian in Dublin and she's getting on in life. She has her own troubles and then she gets breast cancer and she surrounds herself with an unlikely bunch of women who are going through the same thing and it follows their adventure. It's a gem of a film, I must say, because it gave somebody like me an insight into a world I would do not ever want to be a part of, and yet I know people who have been there. And it's very warm, it's very kind, it's dark, uh, and it's difficult. And I thought, I wonder would people who are going through this, would they appreciate it as a sort of an honest appraisal of what it's like to be there, talking about mastectomies and talking about hair and talking about chemotherapy and talking about trying to find humour in a, within the darkness as we tend to do as Irish people so well um, and I, I, I think you might like it so g- give it a go it's called The Bright Side I think RT should show it I think it would be really helpful for, for some people at some point um, but it is available on Amazon Prime if, that's, if, that, if you have that um, you might be able to find it somewhere else but it passed me by the first time around unfortunately um, but I came late to it um, thankfully and um, yeah that, I'm just mentioning that as, as we got that message from Owen. So Owen, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with you later and I hope you're okay. And I hope everyone, because we speak to people, we get texts from people sometimes who are in a car park in a hospital who are about to head in and they're in terrible form and they're in terrible shape and their lives are being turned upside down because everything was going absolutely fine until that appointment with the doctor or that phone call to say, we need you to come in and, and here's the horrible bit, bring someone with you. No one needs that in their lives. So... While we're all having a lot of fun here sometimes, we are conscious of what a lot of you are going through. We know that people are in a domestic violence situation. We know that people are going through a sickness that they never wished upon them, that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. 
And we know that there are medical staff going in to deal with the most awful things in the world. We try to offer a little oasis of calm from all of that, but that's not to say it's Pollyanna. We know that um, life can be difficult, and I suppose we try to help um, distract a little bit from all of that. Okay, so um, we're wishing everyone well this morning. Wasn't expecting to go there, but here we are, and that's what we do. Just keep going, and it's live radio, and that's what happens. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, you need somebody who can handle it. And, well, I think Mr Tuberty did well there to recover after inadvertently blindsiding himself. And that's it, because, well, we can't have more newsings after that, can we? Onwards. Claire Byrne spoke to the new Revenue Commissioner. I didn't know there was only one. Ruth Kennedy this morning. And Claire started with a tough question. It's quite the time to be appointed to the Revenue Board. Huge economic uncertainty. We have a cost of living crisis and a really significant budget on the way too. And people are very worried, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you'd agree about the winter. um, And that's very clear. How will Revenue approach all of this in the sense that for people who are really struggling financially now, what kind of leeway can be shown by Revenue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're correct. It's a a very uncertain time for people. It's challenging for businesses and individuals, the current economic, financial, geopolitical uh, climate that we're operating in. Um, And revenue are conscious and understand uh, that businesses and individuals alike uh, can face cash flow difficulties at at, a time like this, which may make it difficult for them maybe to meet some of their uh, tax liabilities, uh, uh, current tax liabilities at this time. I suppose the key uh, message I would give to those individuals is Revenue has a long track record of successfully working with taxpayers who engage with us early when they're in payment difficulty. Uh, so early engagement is key. Don't let, you know, debt build up. Make sure uh, the minute you uh, are worried about your ability to pay your current taxes that you contact Revenue. Uh, and Revenue can work flexibly with businesses and individuals alike. We have a number of phased payment arrangements we can offer people that allow them spread out uh, their, their tax uh, liability over a longer period, pay in instalments, spread it out up to, to five years. But crucial is early engagement. Mm-hmm. Make so come sure, forward and talk. Come forward and talk to us and make sure you keep filing your current tax returns um, and come forward and talk to us. Our Collector General's Division based in Limerick uh, will work uh, flexibly with people. They'll come to arrangements with people, but you have to come forward and okay. engage Because we, ha- we had a number of businesses on yesterday and they're just really worried about paying the energy bills mm-hmm. um, and, and the tax tax bill for them is undoubtedly going to be a challenge mm-hmm. this year. I mean, are you prepared for that? Are you having those conversations? Absolutely. We're, we're always having those conversations. Different uh, parts of the economy are often uh, have cash flow difficulties and the Collector General has a, has a long track record of successfully helping people resolve payment issues. Early engagement is important. And, and you saw uh, through the COVID pandemic, through the debt warehousing scheme we offered, uh, how revenue worked uh, with uh, uh, businesses experience difficulties during the pandemic and, and the scheme allowed businesses mm-hmm. to park uh, their debt up until uh, the end of 22 and into April But you don't have the capacity to do that now? Well no, we've a, we have a, a warehouse that exists, there's 84,000 uh, entities uh, availing of that debt warehouse and there's 2.8 billion in the warehouse but always with any debt, uh, uh, as long as there's early engagement by the taxpayer, uh, by businesses and they work constructively with us to come up with suitable payment arrangements we will always work constructively with viable businesses. On the other end of the scale, people, individuals who pay too much tax, 
tax. Mm-hmm. What percentage of taxpayers pay too much? Yeah, so interestingly, um, since 2019, we've been receiving real time pay and tax information from employers every time they employ their or every time they pay their employees. And at January, the start of January every year, we make available to individuals a preliminary end of year statement. So it's a preliminary tax calculation based on the information revenue holds on the individual. So their pay, uh, their tax from employment uh, and the credits they're entitled to. Uh, employer Employees then may come in and submit their tax return very simple they confirm the data revenue has for them and then they can claim potentially additional credits they're entitled to medical expenses the remote working relief a lot of people working from home and they must also declare any additional income uh, they're entitled to so if you just look at 2021 the tax year that's just passed uh, we've already had in excess of 620,000 individuals who submitted their income tax return and received over 430 million in refunds. Mm -hmm. Based on our preliminary data, we estimate there's a further 400,000 people who may be entitled to a refund, but they need to come in and finalise their tax affairs. They need to claim any additional credits or declare any additional income they have. And once they do that, it's very quick, easy to do. Uh, Where where do people start though, Ruth, with that with that process mm-hmm. like how can they check all of that yeah um so we have been proactively contacting taxpayers over the summer we've contacted over sixty thousand taxpayers uh who we believe are potentially I- in a position where they're where they're due a refund and we've been contacting them through our my account uh, platform which is our online platform i will say it's very important to remember and you know scams can happen all the time revenue will never send you a link in an email they'll never ask you to fill in a claim form from a link in an email they will always direct you to the website and there you log into my account uh, and you can manage your tax there so it's up to individuals to manage their tax and they can see that preliminary statement they can mm-hmm. log in and check for every year what their preliminary statement is I'm conscious there's some people who obviously aren't able to access online and we are starting a campaign of writing letters to individuals who don't use our online services as well to make them aware okay. So 620,000 um, people have made a claim have made a tax return yes. and you've contacted 60,000 people who you think might be eligible to make a claim but there's still a huge amount of people there who potentially might be owed money back. Absolutely and we're continuing to contact them. Uh, So we started that campaign of contacting them through our our My Account platform Uh, and we've been learning as we go people register their email address with us we've noticed some people aren't reading uh, the documents that we're sending them so we're following up with paper uh, in that instance but I would urge people to log on to My Account. You can use your MyGovID password which a lot of people have um, from during the pandemic Mm -hmm. or you can log into my account and and it's presented there. You can log in and you can see if there's a potential refund. And can can you tell us in broad terms how you've identified the 60,000 people who might be owed something back? Yeah, so it's based on the preliminary end of year statement that we make available. We have done a preliminary tax calculation based on the information we hold uh, about the individual, but they may have extra uh, uh, credits to claim. So medical expenses that we don't know about are the remote working relief, but they also may have income from rental properties or maybe from tuition or something else where they earn income and they need to declare that too. So we can't finalise the position until they complete the return. That's new Revenue Commissioner Ruth Kennedy talking to Claire Byrne this morning. Over the weekend, Ray Darcy spotted a video of a postman in Mount Rath and Port Leash, Seamus Brennan, saying goodbye to the dogs on his route. He's retiring. Seamus joined Ray Darcy on the line, but first, here's the audio from that video. Seamus Brennan 
saying goodbye to the dogs on his postal route. You're the best dog in the world, aren't you? I'm going to miss you. Now, here you are. I'm giving you one little treat, little bone for you, and I won't see you anymore. Is that fair enough? You'll be a good dog when I'm gone. Will you? Okay, here you go. Goodbye. Goodbye, you two. See you tomorrow, all right? No, I won't see you anymore. You want one more? Okay. But that's the last one you'll ever get off of me, okay? I'm going to throw it on the ground so that you can get it, okay? There you go. Goodbye. And off he goes. Postman Seamus in his van, but he's on the line now. How are you doing, Seamus? Hello, Ray. How are you? Great to talk to you. Um, God, you know what? I, I wanted to go with this job quietly and now I find myself on the radar to show <laughs> You've arrived, Seamus. You've arrived. Yeah, thanks very much, Ray. Yeah. Uh, listen, obviously some post people would be running away from dogs. You were the complete opposite. Yeah, well, I tell you, uh, you have to get the dogs when they're, when they're little pups, Ray, because, mm. uh, you know, let them get a smell of you and uh, give them the little treat and you have them hooked then for the rest of their lives. So, And if you get an old dog, Ray, he'll never change his habits. He'll go <laughs> for the tires. So they say, anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How long did you work with on post, Seamus? Um, joined in... 1985, say 37 years altogether, yeah. Yeah. 37, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to retire. To okay, well, I'm looking yeah. at the stats here. You're 63. How come you're retiring at 63? You'll have to explain yourself. Well, Ray, when I was 16, I joined the Army, the apprenticeship scheme in yeah. Nace, yeah. and I was with the, the 20th platoon in Dubai Barracks, Nace, and if any of the 20th guys are listening and just say hello to them all out there a great bunch of guys so Ray I did uh, five years with the army and two years then in McDermott Barracks on the Curragh camp mm. so after that then I uh, I decided the army wasn't for me and I, I I did the old purchase thing you know so I ended up then in of all places Ray I ended up in South Africa for for a few years and I um, What did you do over there? I, 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 well, when I was in the army, I trained as an electrician, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went out to South Africa then, and I worked in the um, um, coal refinery plant. We were refining coal and turning it into oil. So that's what I worked that right. day out there. And I said, I, I said I'd come home then. And so I saw an ad for on post, and I ended up then in... In the post. <laughs> and you did the same route for all of those years? No, Ray, no, 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 not for all. I, I, um, I started off in Sharon Street. Right. And then I did a year there and came back to Port Leash and then another, another year in Port Leash. And so one of the postmen retired then in Mount Rad and I applied for it and got it. So I ended up in Mount Rad. Um, I've said this over and over again and uh, you know I don't know what sort of man you are whether you'll take a compliment or not but, but I would imagine you're the same that that post people are you know part of the fabric of communities and they provide services far beyond just delivering letters and packages Yes well <laughs> that proved itself in the pandemic yeah. I couldn't believe the amount of the amount of you know messages we had to carry out to people the amount of prescriptions we had to collect um, uh, you know, uh, unbelievable amount of things. Bring the newspaper every morning, you know. And, so, and did you get a sense, Seamus, over the years that there were some people 
that you were their only human contact maybe for the day? Well, you'd like to think so. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, like, I, I know myself when you go to some some places, it's hard to get away from people, you yeah. know, and then you tell yourself, they probably saw no one for a day or two, you know, and there used to be a human contact with them, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so you're still a, you're still a young you're still a young man. So you, yeah. you, you you've loads of hobbies. Go on. Yeah, I'm 63 now, and uh, I suppose uh, I love the beekeeping, which right. is um, I love the uh, the fishing. Okay. And I, I have my motorbikes to keep me busy as well. I have three motorbikes here and the Suzuki. Honda and the Kawasaki. So, and what CC are we talking? Well, we're talking about the the Honda is a 750 Magna, right? And the Suzuki is a 650 Bandit, and the Kawasaki is a KMX 125. So, between the three of them, now I can only go one at a time. That's it. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Motorbikes are like toilets; you can only use one at a time. <laughs> yeah. The, the, how did you happen into the beekeeping? Well, I tell you, Ray, there was a a gardener by the name of Paddy Merriman from Port Leash and when he got older then he um, he asked me to drive him out to his bees mm. so I drove him out to his bees anyway and I'd sit in the car and I'd look at him doing these bits and pieces you know and he'd put the honey boxes on and he'd come out he'd ask me maybe once a month just to check them that they're still on and I'd put new new honey bo- supers we call them on the boxes and the poor man died anyway and one day then knock him to the door and his, his wife we used to call her Nurse Merriman she used to deliver the babies in Port Lees but mm-hmm. she came to the door and she said I'm afraid Seamus Paddy has left you all his beehives I'm afraid I'm afraid he's <laughs> left <laughs> so I had to go and look into beekeeping then so I joined the Dunhamace Beekeepers Association in Port Lees and that's where my bee career took right. off then. So yeah. Paddy Merriman, um, Paddy, that's that's Paddy, lovely though yeah. to keep to keep Paddy's memory alive to his bees. Yeah, yeah, yeah great gardener. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's lovely. Uh, yeah. So, so you you won't be you won't be idle anyway with the the course fishing and the beekeeping and the motorbikes and uh, no, yeah, no, and and my wife she'll have a few jobs left for me as well. I reckon. Great. Right. Uh, how are yeah. you around the house? Are you a good DIY man? Oh, well, you know, when you're postman, you're home, you're home early. Well, when I say half three, yeah. quarter past three. And my God, if you don't have the dinner on the table and she comes in to be war. Right, there you go. So, yeah. Well, listen, enjoy your retirement. Um, Thanks, Ray. Uh, yeah, and you, you brightened up people's lives over the weekend yeah. with that bit of and video I, there. I, yeah, I, I just want to blame my son, Niall, for all this hassle he's got to cause. Okay. He's the one that put that video on TikTok or whatever you call it. And do you, want to, do you want to name check some of the dogs on your round or are you fearful that you leave one of them out? Oh, well, yeah. You have, you have Benji and, and you have um, Kroger and you have um, Kroger. Let me see now. What's the other little lad's name? Um, Jesus. You've forgot them already. Huh? <laughs> You've moved on. You've moved on. Seamus Brennan. That's Yep, Seamus Brennan, the retired postman for Mont- Mount Rath and Port Leash, endearing himself to all the dogs on his now former route on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Brian Tuberty was joined this morning by Nikki Colleen, who has a very impressive sounding job title. 
So I, I work for the health service. I yes. work for the National Social Inclusion Office and I am an emerging drug trend project manager. So what that means is I look at our drug market and our drug trends and uh, inform the HSE's work based on that. And what are the drug market and trends saying at the moment? I mean, what 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 is of huge interest to you? Okay, so specifically to the job that I do, I'm particularly interested in what we call our new user groups. Yeah. So traditionally in Ireland, we would have looked at drugs and substance use under the lens of people who are dependent. So opioids, crack, tablets. I the, the user groups I am really interested in are our nightlife. So our young people who are using ecstasy, cocaine, new types of drugs, psychedelics, uh, and we generally don't see them in our services. So they don't come in for treatment and often they're missed in some of our research. So what you might have called recreational drugs is the word. So you're using modern tech, modern phraseology because that's your training. So I'm an old guy. So I'm so you talk about people you normally see who, who would have been once upon a time called drug addicts. You don't say that anymore, do you? We, we call them our service users. So um, people who would have a dependency who come into yeah. services. So they would be the people we, we see around the city who may have homeless issues, yeah. uh, you know, a number of different issues. So so we, we've responded since the 80s to those user groups. Yes. We have services. Our services are very opioid driven. Uh, but what, what we're not seeing or who we're not capturing are these young, as you said, Ron, recreational yes. or occasional users who are using uh, stimulant type drugs in different ways. OK, so forgive my language. I'm not trying to be cold or cruel to people who are, you know, service users. You say, I'm yeah. just trying to work my way around the language of this world that I'm not familiar with. OK, so le- when you talk about the nightlife, people, so you're talking about people go to nightclubs, go to uh, festivals who, because what I hear is that th- that drugs are awash in the villages and towns and cities of Ireland, that they're, it's easy to get as much of it as you want. Not that dear. Um, and it's um, it's all going on. So uh, is that true or is that a gross exaggeration? I think it's fair to say that things have changed. Things are very different. Is that in what sense? Like In in the sense that all parts of society now use drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's not just certain Dublin areas. It's not just certain communities. uh, It's all social classes. They're using different types of drugs in different ways. But we are seeing increases across the board in substance use. It's reflective in our treatment data. It's reflective in our prevalence data. And it's reflective in what we're seeing in nightlife spaces. So while, say, MDMA would have been associated with niche user groups at one time, you know, certain nightlife communities, it's now moved to the mainstream. So I think it's fair to say now that drug use has become mainstream. So what is MDMA? So MDMA is a chemical uh, substance. Uh, people will probably know it as ecstasy pills. Oh, right, OK. So uh, MDMA is the active ingredient in, in ecstasy pills. But what we're seeing now is more MDMA powder and crystals. So in the 90s, people would have used uh, tablets and, you know, branded tablets and would have been aware of those. We're seeing those those pills, those tablets still, still around. But now younger people are using powders and crystals uh, and calling it MDMA. So, okay. so we generally say MDMA for so the range of substances. Cocaine? Yes. As rampant as ever. Cocaine is used across all sectors of society. So we see it in our service users, our treatment population, our nightlife uh, populations. So so it's fair to say, again, that, you know, cocaine has become another mainstream substance. Yeah. And then c- cannabis, hash, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yes. Grass. So- 
Cannabis would be the most commonly used drug in Europe and in, and in Ireland. And again, you know, a range of different user groups. I suppose what we're seeing with the cannabis market is uh, the Americanization of products. So we're seeing edible products mm. uh, that look like sweets or drinks. Uh, and we're seeing uh, vape products and different types of shatter and uh, other other products. So, so the markets are evolving. They're mm. changing. They're growing. The marketing is changing. The branding is changing. And who's using is changing. So really from the HSE's perspective, we need to be aware of, of the trends. We need to be aware of what's in the drugs. We need to be aware of who's using the drugs and how we can engage with those people. So like you said at the beginning, a lot of the people that you've described, a lot of the drugs you've described there, uh, people aren't using your services because they're not, they don't have a, an addiction problem. By the, that would be the logic from it. So they go out to the weekend, they do this, they do that, and then they go back to work and then the following weekend they're fine. But they're not, you know, alcoholics with alcohol or, you know, drug addict with, with or youth service user with, with drugs. So why why do you why what what are you trying to find out? What what do you need to know and why? So yeah, while while our new user groups or, you know, our our, our now diverse user groups that we have, they may not have uh, dependencies, they may use occasionally, but they are at risk of harm. So they are at risk of unknown contents, they are at risk of substances appearing without their knowledge, drug market changes. Uh, and I suppose the aim of, of what, what I do and what we do in the HC is to help them reduce harm. So obviously the message we, we would prefer, uh, you know, it's it's safer not to use substances. There are risks. Mm. There's risks based on your personal uh you you know, individual factors, there's risks on the, dr- the current drug market. Uh, but what we need to do is be able to engage with those people to help them stay safe, to help them reduce the harms and to help them minimise what, what could happen to them, but also to, to, to provide drug education and to engage. So of those people who may need support, we can engage with them then and then link with them into services. Are you worried about what's in the drug? I mean, you often hear stories, you see it in the movies that they've just put kind of off, you know, stupid stuff in that and, and people, are, you know, to try and dilute it. Yeah. So that, that's one of our biggest concerns is that global and economic factors can significantly change the drug market. So the drug market can change really quickly and what's in it can change really quickly. Um, so we're really concerned at the moment about, firstly, high strength drugs. So the European drug market shifted a few years ago uh, and MDMA and cocaine increased in purity. So that, that, that I suppose, is not a positive message. It mm-hmm. increases the harms for people. So whereas people may have taken one ecstasy pill at a, at a point in time, uh, they now need to, to look at a quarter because there's so much pure MDMA in those tablets. What we're also concerned about is new psychoactive substances. Yeah. So you you and your listeners, Ryan, may be aware of the head shops. So we had head shops at one point in time. They essentially closed with legislative changes. But these drugs infiltrated the black market and continue to evolve. So what we're seeing in Europe is more of these newer drugs being sold as ecstasy, being sold as cocaine and appearing mm. uh, it, without people knowing. So people may think they're buying MDMA, but get what's known as a synthetic cathinone, which could lead to very different effects and, and increases the risks for them. So give us an example then. If you're at um, a, f- a festival, how will I know you're there and Let's say I'm. Let's say I'm a young person, or not even a young person, but going to a festival. The last, and 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 I'm, I'm interested in doing these drugs, as a lot of people might might be. Um, the last person I want to see is you, isn't it? Because even though you're you're well intended, you're also reminding me of what I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> so why would I want to see you? In a you know a you know a high vis jacket saying, "Hey, give us your drugs." Like what what is your point? Yeah, it's you raise on detri if you like at a, at a festival. I'm sure some people do feel like that, and there is you know people who who don't want to discuss. I mean, 
drug use is stigmatised. People people may not want to come and chat. But we've actually had a really positive experience. So so what we found, we, we did a little bit of work in 2019. We've been growing with a social media presence and very vibrant messages uh, aimed at young people. We've been in colleges for the past few years. Uh, and what we found partnering with these festivals was young people really want to know how to keep themselves and their friends safe. So they're actively coming to us they want to know what's in their drugs, they want to know if they can have their drugs analysed, they want to know uh, the com- combination, so if they're on a medication, will it interact negatively? So so something has changed in the sense that young people are more aware of harm reduction okay. and they want to make informed decisions. So, so people are actively looking for us when the festivals say that we're there, they do come up to us. That's Nikki Killeen, the HSE's Emerging Drug Trends Project Manager. And she was talking to Ryan Tiberty this morning. Now, with high rents and a shortage of houses to pay them for, it's getting harder and harder to attract people to work in Dublin. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Claire spoke to Paul Crone, the director of the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals, about the difficulty of attracting new teachers into the capital. It's a shifting sand situation and that it's changing um, daily and I spent a lot of time over the weekend on the phone with principals as they made decisions and if I can use an example, one school that had a large school that three woodwork teachers, one teacher resigned after they were unable to give him his career break and they were unable to recruit. So they redrafted the timetable over the weekend and redistributed the woodwork classes among the two existing woodwork teachers. That school will now declare that they don't have a vacancy for a woodwork teacher but they will next year. As distinct to another school with one woodwork teacher, they are, and they haven't been able to recruit that teacher, they are now still actively recruiting for that woodwork teacher, both those schools in Dublin. Now, it hasn't been particularly, it's been worse in Dublin, but it's been a national problem this year also, is what we're hearing through our regions. So how else are the principals managing then? I mean, one way, as you described there, is to redraft your timetable. How else are they coping with it? Well, the, the 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 traditional way would be you would just you would employ a teacher, but in the event that you can't get somebody, there are arrangements in place that you if you find somebody with a professional qualification in in that area, which of course is quite difficult in in the, in the woodwork area. You can employ them for four days a week at an unqualified rate as an unqualified um, teacher. And and very often that's what uh, schools are are, are down to. For example, if they had a vacancy, we'll say, for a Spanish teacher, and they were unable to get a Spanish teacher, they might be able to get somebody with a degree in Spanish and they can employ them as a uh, an unqualified teacher for four days per week. Right. And then when it comes to uh, urban areas, in particular in Dublin, are you finding that principals are struggling because of the accommodation crisis that teachers maybe who were offered a position are saying, well, I can't find anywhere to live, so I can't take the job? Increasingly, that that is becoming an issue and and, and principals are being very innovative. I know one principal did email his staff members and say, if anybody has a spare room, uh, we have a number of teachers looking for accommodation in Dublin. And he was was reasonably successful in that. But it it is increasingly becoming an issue. Um, It's equally an issue that a number of established staff members who maybe want to uh, enter into the housing market are are finding it um, too expensive to buy a house in Dublin and are maybe moving to the community 
scouter belt and after a number of years of travelling in and out of, of Dublin they secured a job maybe to reduce their commute um, slightly outside Dublin and, and it's, it's a drain on the schools in, in the city and, and it's been going on for a number of years and it, it's particularly bad this year. So are we at the point then where there should be incentives offered to attract teachers to work in Dublin? Well, it, it, it certainly we do need to incentivise people to come into teaching first and foremost to increase the number of people who are applying for teaching positions and undertaking the training. And we also need to look at how, how we can encourage and, and incentivise teachers to, to work and stay uh, in Dublin. And, and that will involve, uh, I suppose, a myriad of, of issues. And what, what, what we would be calling for is that the teacher, the post-primary teacher supply forum, which involves all of the stakeholders, we need to sit down because it's a complex issue and we need to look at all of the issues and nothing should be taken off the table at yeah. this stage. They do it in England, don't they? In London, there's a London premium. There is, there is a, London, a London premium and, and it, it causes some uh, issues in, 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 in that system as well in that you're creating inequalities and we need to be very careful um, of that. Um, and so, but there, there are lots of other, or other issues around trainee teachers and, and trying to um, encourage maybe teachers who have retired uh, to take hours. Because when we look at our system, numbers are increasing in post-primary level and they will increase for a number of years, but that's not going to go on indefinitely. And uh, it, it tends to be, to be cyclical. So we have a particular pinch point at, at the moment that we need to get over. And, and the inflation levels and the cost of living are, are particular issues that has come in the form of a perfect storm this year. Yeah, and it would seem that the storm is, is centred, from, certainly from what we're hearing, it is centred around urban areas, in particular in Dublin, and in, so. in getting uh, teachers to, to start work in schools there. And one option, as we said, would be an additional allowance for teachers who are willing to come and work in Dublin. Norma Foley, the Education Minister, was asked about it yesterday. I mean, is it something that you would like to see explored, Paul? I would like to see everything explored and I think it has to be fully discussed. The pros and cons of it need, need to, be, to be looked at and see... But there are issues around it from the point of view, it is, a, is it a working in Dublin? Is it a living and working in Dublin? Where do you draw the... There are huge issues, plus creating different pay scales for different teachers. There, there are huge, huge issues that, that come with it. And that's why we need to get all the stakeholders around the table and thrash this out and look at a long-term sustainable solution to the teacher supply issue. Claire also spoke about this to Peter Cosgrove future of work expert and managing director of Futurewise, she asked him if he thought there needed to be a Dublin premium for prospective teachers moving to the big smoke. I, I think the word premium is probably one of the challenges here because it's not really a premium. I mean, what they really need to do is just break down what the cost of living is in Dublin versus many places in the rural areas. And you'll probably find even if you gave what they call a premium, you're probably not actually getting any more money. So really, so the challenge is when people say we're going from equal to unequal, actually, it's probably unequal in Dublin to be paid the same amount as somebody in rural settings because the cost of living is so much higher. And as we've seen recently, ratcheting even more. In the private sector, does this happen? 
Yeah, it absolutely happens, but it's just supply and demand. I mean, talent goes where the uh, the money is, and if they don't like it, they just move somewhere else. And because people, by their nature, don't have jobs where they're completely secure, they are more mobile. Um, so the reality is, you know, the job. In fairness to employers, they pay as little as they can pay to hire people. They don't try and overpay. But if people aren't going to stay because of rent, because of accommodation, they have two choices: they can either move somewhere else, as in their whole business somewhere else, or they can actually start looking at paying their employees more. You heard what Paul Cuomo was saying there that, you know, everything should be considered, but a, a particular solution in a, a premium for people living in urban areas, he says, would cause all sorts of problems because you'd be looking at different pay scales for teachers. I think that that's more of the challenge with some of these things with the public sector because you've got bans and rates and so forth. Um, I do think you could potentially work them out, but you'd need to start by saying, what are all the potential issues? What are the challenges here and how can we do this? You'd also need to lobby members and actually ask them to, uh, to, to discuss this because, you know, the reality is for this affects the private sector as well because you know multinationals coming into Ireland um, and seeing it as a great place to work when they start saying well I can't get my child into a school or there's no teachers available that's going to affect us and affect our brand, brand Ireland so we have to be very careful around that so it's really important that we actually have a very robust education sector for Ireland as well. And does Ireland and the urban areas in particular lose talent because of this problem? Well I mean it's one of if um, employees come in and you know not everybody loves all the multinationals but the reality is there's a huge tax take from them they obviously come here obviously tax is one of the reasons talent is number two but almost number three they start asking about education and property these are the things that they ask Mm -hmm. and if we're suddenly going to be honest with them and say look this is a real challenge at the moment we're always competing against three other countries and we generally do very very well but we don't want to become less competitive Okay I have a text in here uh, Paul which is really interesting given what we were just talking about this listener taught on an island and there was an island allowance no issues then why not give a Dublin allowance so it already exists the, the island allowance does exist um, and, and, and that's why I, I think we do need to get all of the stakeholders uh, around the table to, to, discuss, to discuss this issue and, and tease out the, the issues and, and potentially look at, at solutions to it so yes it, it, there is a precedent there for an island allowance and, and, and maybe um, that, that it is something that does need to be discussed by all of the stakeholders is what I would suggest. Has it, has it ever come up? Has it ever been discussed in a serious way? Um, not, n- not while I was present. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in the position a year, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not aware. And, and I, previously I was, I was a school principal um, for 11 years. Um, and I, I'm not aware that, that, that it, it was discussed um, in, in a serious way. But, uh, I mean, it also has to be part of, of, of a suite of, of solutions. It's, it's not a magic bullet um, in it by any means. Yeah, it's just interesting to hear the private sector perspective on this. You know, Peter's saying it, it happens automatically because the employers have no choice but to pay more if, people, if they want people to live and work in Dublin. Absolutely, and and I mean we we have to look at the bigger context of the, of the public sector. We're, we're talking the teachers, we're talking guards, we're talking nurses, we're talking civil servants. So it, it's the, the the public sector is 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 a much larger organisation than a, a, a company or or, or, or a, a small even a large company, and and the implications on the the public exchequer needs to be considered to um, in in relation to pension entitlements going forward, and and all of how that 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 would work out. So it it. It's not as simple as, as the, the 
as it would be in, in, in a company where you, you maybe have a, a chief executive managing a board. There's the whole public sector wider accountability and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and, and all of the, the public expenditure issues that, that come with that. That's Paul Crone, Director of the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals, who, along with Peter Cosgrove, Future of Work expert, were speaking to Claire Byrne this morning about the shortage of teachers in the Dublin area. This afternoon's Live Line kicked off with a conversation about surging energy prices. Joe Duffy spoke to Geraldine Dolan of Poppy's Cafe in Athlone, whose electricity bill has gone up by over 400%. I worked out the increase, Geraldine, is 426% on your ESB bill. It's crazy, Joe. Absolutely crazy. Give us the figures. The figures from the bill I got yesterday, which nearly keeled me over, €9,836.92. Oh my God, okay. For what duration does that cover? That covered 73 days because we were with Iberdrola and they left the country because they're not operating here anymore. They were a Spanish energy company. Mm-hmm. My last bill from them would have been 2370 And you've sent us in both. So it's yeah. crystal clear. Um, so and was it for many days was the 2370... Uh, the 2370 was exactly two months and the other one is for 73 days, which is two months and a bit. But it still has gone up 426%. Yeah. Now, all the the, the, char- the increases that have been announced and indeed have been happening since this time last year, but none of the increases come, on, come to 426%. I don't know. Well, I know where some of it came from. When we were with Edgebrola, we had an energy consultant who had got us the best rate. Okay. When Erdebrola left the country, everybody mm. was automatically put back onto Electric Ireland. We had a very short window to change, but we weren't aware of it. I think it could have been 24 or 48 hours. Wow. It didn't happen. So we couldn't get out of this bill until the 1st of September. So our rate increased drastically. Instead of paying, I think, was it 14 pence, 14 cents a unit last year to something like 45 cents a unit this year. And can you get it any cheaper? Well, hopefully we can as of the 1st of September tomorrow, but he's telling me the rates around the country at the moment are horrendous. He hasn't come back with an exact company. And how big, how big a cafe is Poppy Fields? We're not very big. We're a small cafe. Yes, we've got a really nice outdoor area, which we've utilised very well. We put it on during COVID. Um, we have a fully functioning kitchen where we make everything here ourselves from our breads to our hams and everything in between. But, you know, we'd see... But can you, can you keep going with, a, with a electric, an electricity bill of nearly €10,000 every 70 days? Well, not if it's every 70 days. Absolutely no way. But I intend to fight this and I intend to keep on fighting because I ain't going down anywhere. I'm here 16 years. I've worked for myself since I was 24 years old. I have no intention of closing my fabulous little coffee shop. And this is and a, this is great a, staff. Yeah, I understand. But this is a summertime bill. Did you, did you use outdoor heaters and are the people of Athlone especially... No, uh, not at Nordic. All. <laughs> They're not cold critters. <laughs> I don't know, okay. No. So you don't use outdoor heaters? 
We do in the summer, in the winter time, yeah. but I mean... Okay, can you imagine the fuel bill is 9,836 for 73 days in the warmest summer we've had since 1976, yeah. if not before, records broken. Can you yeah. imagine what your ESB bill is going to be when you have to turn on those heaters? Well, please God, when my energy guy comes back to me later okay. on, he's going to have a much better okay. rate. But I mean, what's annoyed me more than anything is Electric Ireland won't even... I mean, I've tweeted them, I've messaged them, I've done everything, I've rang them. Okay. Geraldine Dolan of Poppy's Cafe in Athlone talking to Joe Duffy this afternoon about the huge electricity bill she's got from her supplier. Finally, for this edition of Playback Daily, with the schools reopening and August winding to a close, it seems like a good time to ask questions about the Irish weather. Like, how do we get so much of it? Claire Byrne put the hard questions to meteorologist with Met Aaron, Joanna Donnelly. Do we have a particularly variable weather system here? We do. We absolutely do. And I, I think this is going to be a running theme through every conversation because it is a running theme through every conversation I have about the weather and it's down to the Atlantic. It's down to our position between the Atlantic and not just the Atlantic, the Atlantic with the warm stream of uh, of water that comes up and keeps us warm. It's coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. That's why it's called the Gulf Stream. And also our proximity to Europe, the landmass of Europe. So we're on the edge of those two. We're in a unique position. So it's it's down to our unique position in the world. And that's probably why we're going to get very different weather on our east coast and on our west coast. That's right. On the West Coast, of course, we've got the Atlantic and the weather systems that come with it. Also, apart from just weather systems associated with low pressure, we've got the showers as well. Showers come in off the Atlantic. The Atlantic is actually quite warm, particularly around our coast where we, as I said, the Gulf Stream is going to keep coming up. Um, So it generates showers when there's a cold air mass and those showers then affect uh, coastal areas of the West as well. So it's not even just one thing or another. It's a combination of a lot of things. And people would have really noticed this during the really warm weather during the summer. Summer, the, the heat wave where you people saying I'm sweltering in 33 degrees in, in one part of Ireland but then in places like the northwest people are saying well no, hang on a second now, it's only 17 <laughs> degrees here I know, I know. And you have to really be careful about that when you're broadcasting a, a weather forecast saying it's a beautiful day and the people that are sitting in the poor conditions on coastal areas. And it's not always the northwest either. And the early part of the summer, you're going to see the south coast really suffer from coastal fog. And we can see Cork and Waterford uh, and all the coastal areas of the south, Cork, Kerry, Waterford might have the sea fog and that's because you get the warm air coming up over the colder sea in the early part of the summer and they really suffer from poor days when the inland areas will might see 33 degrees in sunshine and at the east coast of course if you get an easterly wind which will give most of the country lovely weather the east coast will really suffer because the Irish Sea is freezing <laughs> the Irish Sea is actually much colder than the Atlantic coast But even in those places in the coastal regions that might expect colder weather you'll have places towns that are sheltered by mountain ranges. Exactly. I'm going to add something into the mix. You know, I, I hope at the end of this conversation, Claire, there's going to be a huge appreciation for meteorologists in Ireland. That's what we're aiming for. <laughs> we add into the mix there in the mountains. We've got the McGillicuddy Reeks there in um, 
Kerry, and they're a thousand metres high. So anything to the leeward side. So that's the side away from the wind. We've got a prevailing southwesterly wind in Ireland. So the wind comes, hits the mountain ranges, rises up, dries out as it rises, and then it's warmer as it falls down the other side. That's putting it simply. It's called a fawn effect. And that will give warmer, drier weather on the lee side of mountains. So you get these little towns that have beautiful climates on the right side of a mountain range. So are those the microclimates that we hear about? Yeah, I think nearly every town in Ireland, particularly a town that has a reliance on uh, any sort of tourism is going to say they have a microclimate. But we do have microclimates. There are little towns and villages. I think Arklow probably has a lovely little microclimate too because it's got the east coast and it's got the, the east coast drier weather and it's got the, the, the fawn from the Wicklow Mountains where you're also high mountains. So yet there are towns and villages. I know we're going to hear from Cork and Kerry, the, the, the towns and villages down around the McGillicuddy Weeks that have these lovely warm climates and that's due to those um, prevailing southwest winds coming well, over. It's interesting to hear you mention Arklow on the east coast because when you hear and talk about microclimates, you do normally associate it with the southwest, don't you? The southwest, yes, because the mountains there are particularly high and that's they they do get a notable difference, and especially because coastal areas of the west have the 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 fronts coming in, the clouds low, the raining out, and then just over the mountain range. The rain has gone, the Hmm. sun's out and it's warm. And the air temperature itself is actually higher too. Uh, The wettest areas then in Ireland along the Atlantic coast, exposed areas, I suppose, given what you've said. Yeah, they're, as I said, they're not just exposed to the frontal systems, which come in from the Atlantic associated with those um, low pressure systems, but we've also got showers. You'll hear the, if you listen out for the forecasts, you'll hear showers becoming confined to western coastal areas overnight. That's because showers that generate during the day over the heat of the land, when the land loses its heat at night, those showers die away, but they're still coming in on the coast because the sea is warmer. So in the wintertime particularly, or in, at this time of the year indeed, you'll see the showers retreating to the coast. So coasts are going to also, as well as getting the frontal systems, they've also got the showers. So they're definitely going to get mm. more rain. And with, with a bit of wind, you get that constant sideways rain. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I know just, I shouldn't laugh no but it's but really yeah, t- it's, I, I find yeah. that really tough it's quite oppressive you know when it's when it is constant and it can yeah. be uh, yeah and I think when it's coupled with rain or wind sorry when the rain is coupled with wind it can be you know you can take one or the other you can put a coat on you can put a raincoat on but when they're both coming at you together you really feel like it's out to get you Meteorologist with Metair and Joanna Donnelly explaining how our particularly diverse weather is actually the result of a malevolent force that wants to torture us for its own twisted enjoyment. Or possibly I'm reading too much into our answer there. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Until the next time, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.